Assalamu alaikum. May peace be upon you all. I'm Dr. Abdullah Zakaria. Welcome to Medical Matters from the Hadigat al-Mahdi in the English county of Hampshire. Today I'm joined by Mr. Farah Seti, who is a physiotherapist by profession. He's an advanced physiotherapy practitioner working within the NHS. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Medical Matters. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you for having me. So, Mr. Seti, um, could you please tell us what is physiotherapy? Uh, what does it mean? Um, physiotherapy is an allied health-based uh, profession, um, and it basically, in an essence, means studying of human movement and allowing people to move better um, with less pain. That's, in essence, what physiotherapy is about. And how does it work? So physiotherapy has different modes of therapy um, you could use. So we have the active approaches, which are sort of exercises and rehabilitation, and you have the passive approaches, which are manual therapy and some electrotherapy devices, which are actually, in current evidence, a bit backdated. So we are heading towards a more active approach rather than a more sort of a passive approach. We're trying to get patients to move better and more often to obviously improve longevity and sustainability of life. Right, thank you very much. So these are the different ways it works, but, but can you tell us that we know there are different types of physiotherapy and when uh, people go to their doctors, they can uh, refer them to, for almost for lots of other specialty problems, they can refer to different physiotherapy services. Could you please tell us what are the different types of physiotherapy services available? Sure, so in the UK, obviously, we have the NHS-based structure where a patient would wake up in the morning with, let's say, neck pain, um, and the first point of call would be the general practitioner. Um, unfortunately, because of demand, it's very difficult to get that appointment with the GP uh, these days. So you'd expect to wait four, five, six weeks to see the GP. Um, recently, they've introduced a physiotherapy practitioner inside the clinic. Most GPs uh, surgeries around the UK have that facility. And that GP will refer you to the physiotherapist and the physiotherapist will be able to diagnose what's going on and be able to assess, manage, and then form your treatment pathway. Uh, in terms of whether you need musculoskeletal physiotherapy, which basically means dealing with bones, joints, muscles, tendons, ligaments. We also have physiotherapy for the elderly, which could be things like falls prevention programs, because the falls are a common, common risk of injury in the uh, elderly population. We have things like respiratory physiotherapy, which could be to do with breathing difficulties, or for example, medical conditions like cystic fibrosis. Um, and then we have also uh, conditions neurological, which could be somebody who suffered a stroke, and has had some paralysis of one limb or another and may need some physiotherapy intervention to help them regain their function. Right, so these are the main three or four specialties. So could you, I mean like all these treatments that is delivered through the physiotherapy service, what are those that are most successful or you can say the satisfaction of our patients or clients would be uh, maximum? Sure, uh, as a musculoskeletal physiotherapist, I can comment on that sector. Um, as we know, back pain is a, is a pandemic in itself. I mean, back pain is all very, very ripe all around the world. Um, so the most common things that we would see in clinical practice would be back pain and a, a, a sort of educating patients about how they can manage their back pain because 98.9% .9 of back pain is not serious and it would usually settle within three to seven days, maybe a week or so, maybe a bit longer, depending on the individual. But what we are trying to understand and educate people these days is not just a structural or a biological problem that could be causing your back pain or any other 
musculoskeletal joint pain. It could be a biopsychosocial approach that we're looking at. So that means biology, that means sociology in terms of your economic status or you know your working environment, your working class, um, and also the psychology behind injury. So people who've had injury, they could be going through some depression or they could have had a, a marriage breakdown or a bereavement in their family, which could also be um, amplifying their pain in certain muscle groups like shoulder or neck or lower back. So that's the approach that we take these days in physiotherapy, the biopsychosocial approach, biology, psychology, and social aspects of injury. Interesting that you mentioned that pain is related to the psychological status of people's mind and then socioeconomic status as well and what type of job they do. I mean, there is an occupational element to it as well. Sure. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what, you know, unfortunately, what you just indicated that the back pain without any cause or i.e. what we call mechanical back pain. And for that mechanical back pain, um, the physiotherapy is the mainstay of treatment. What sort of treatment you offer to them? Sure, so the main purpose of treatment for physiotherapy for somebody who presents with back pain would be number one, giving them reassurance that there's nothing sinister going on, which means that they don't have anything cancerous or they don't have any neurological deficits. So these are the things that we would be checking out before we say, okay, you don't need any further intervention, like for example, any imaging, which would involve an MRI scan, I'm sure people are aware of an MRI scan. If you're not, it's a, it's a machine device where you uh, go inside the machine and it will take some pictures in different angles of your body to look at different structural um, uh, problems, I guess, in your, in your spine or any other joint for that matter. X-rays are also available, blood tests are also available, but generally a physiotherapist will then say, right, this is not a serious problem, so we need to look at how we can help you move better. So we will look at activity modification will be the first thing that we encourage people to do. So if you're a, I don't know, if you're a builder and you're doing lots of, slabbing or paving for example on a daily basis we would ask you to maybe come off that for a second or a period of a couple of days and then maybe ease yourself back into that workload otherwise we'd be giving things pain relief or we'd be giving looking at exercises that are very very generic just to help you move with less pain but also exercise i must say is a very very good pain modulating effect we don't always need to have medication to alleviate pain exercise can also do that to some extent Thank you very much. Um, so this will reduce the pain, but I wanted to ask you if people want to go and do a bit of research and delve into those exercises. Nowadays we know, uh, locally we know from our physiotherapy services, they signpost people to a, 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 via link or SMS with a link so that people can go and actually read about it and perhaps do their exercises. So they usually give a, a, a you know, how to do those exercises, uh, either in paper form or electronic form. Do you want to tell us a few, uh, few of those you know, resources, if you like? Sure, I mean, social media these days is, uh, is the biggest resource, and people most likely, when they have neck pain, will Google, um, I have neck pain, what exercise do I need to do? Or I have ankle pain, what exercise do I need to do? So that's a very, very common resource at the moment. And with regards to NHS, we'd be referring people to versus arthritis, which is a great website, great resource that has problems, for example, shoulder pain, neck pain, lower back pain, and knee pain, which are the most common um, joint-related problems that we experience. Um, generally, there's lots and lots of exercises out there, but I always promote to patients to say that there's no bad exercise, it's more about the application of what you use. So if you're, for example, if you are two or three days post-injury, you're not gonna be doing, for example, 125 kilogram deadlift in the gym. You have to activity modify. Uh, you have to obviously look at your activity modification and slowly start with general exercises 
Some of them may be on the floor, some of them may be in a sitting position, some of them may be in a standing position, but they will generally be lower intensity, lower dosage to allow you to gain that confidence to start to move better with less pain before you start to attempt anything that may be, let's say you're a builder again, we go back to that reference. If you're a builder and you need to be slabbing and lifting concrete platforms 50 to 60 times a day, you're not gonna be able to do that day three after an injury. But maybe day seven or day 10, once you've done some exercises and allow the symptoms to settle down, then you will be able to return to your normal activity and function. So that means that it needs to be individualized rather than giving a the generic prescription to everyone. That would be my gold standard point that it's worth seeing a physiotherapist and sometimes if it's not the NHS, paying privately is actually a good idea to pay one session to see a physiotherapist because you've just hit the nail on the head. Exercises need to be individualistic sorry, individualistic and person-centered. We can't just give people a sheet of paper that has the same generic exercises for a 75-year-old lady with back pain or a 23-year-old with back pain because their activities will differ and their body structure will differ uh, and their pain tolerance uh, will also differ. So that's really important. I'm glad you mentioned that. I would say um, having some guidance from a physiotherapist to make an individualized specific exercise tailored program would be a great start point for anybody with musculoskeletal pain. Excellent. So this is a very important point. I, I would like to go into the different physiotherapy services, but before I do that, under the musculoskeletal, in short, we call it MSK service. I know in the medical jargon, I don't want to go into the acronyms, but this MSK physiotherapy, under that heading, your second most commonest presentation is shoulder pain. Uh, it could be frozen shoulder, it could be rotator cuff pathology of certain form, and people do request loads of scans and ultrasound and so on and injection and so on. But I wanted to touch upon this as a physiotherapy practitioner, what is your um, advice for people who, when they have this, you know, let's say presenting with the shoulder pain? I, I know it's a very generic question. Again, it needs to be you know, individualized, but if you could throw some light upon. Sure. It's actually story. a wonderful question because working in the roti plant here at Jalsa Salana, <laughs> I have a, a patient who just, just asked me about a rotator cuff problem he's been diagnosed with. Does he need an MRI? Does he need an injection? Or does he need some specific exercises? And the misinterpretation is that if they have, a, if people have a tear in their shoulder or knee or another muscle group, that they need surgery, that the muscle will not heal. Unfortunately, that's a, a backdated myth, and that needs to change in, in in the open world. That most muscle tears can heal, ligamentous tears can heal, tendon ruptures can heal. Um, of course, the timing matters, um, and depending on your activity, matters. So most commonly, football players these days look talk about the ACL being ruptured and it doesn't heal do we need surgery that's a debate on its own but regarding your question shoulder pain which is very very common these days especially in those manual labor work so your builders your plasterers your plumbers that we see on a daily basis landscape gardeners um, it's very important to educate them that and most of these shoulder problems happen in that working class we'd say from the age of 25 to around 55 that's where most of these shoulder rotator cuff pathologies whether it's a tendonitis, whether it's a tendinopathy, or whether it's a muscular tendus tear, or whether it is indeed, for example, frozen shoulder, or any other sinister problems. Again, unless it's not any sinister problem, um, nothing cancerous or nothing coming from another referral source, most shoulder pain will settle down with activity modification, 
education and graded exposure to the activities that you are used to doing. That is my biggest take home point is come off your activity for two to three days, maybe a week depending on your activity level and slowly start to incorporate exercises that you would do on a daily basis. And that's why generic exercises are no use to an individual. If somebody is an, uh, let's say a cabin crew individual who has to put hand luggage into the top compartment 50 to 100 times on one flight. It is no point them doing exercises uh, down by their body, for example, or in a very, very close compact position because they need to raise their hands above their head. So exercises should prepare that individual for doing that particular movement. Excellent point. Uh, and I, I would like to just add with that, you just uh, quickly touched upon this red flags. Uh, shoulder pain uh, for the member of our um, you know listeners who is listening this program uh, it's important to just to rule out if there is any red flags um, there are two elements that we need to strike a balance I think uh, people usually consult with the idea of going straight to imaging but uh, we need to balance it out like look in, initially if there is any shoulder pain maybe to think about whether if there is no fracture or dislocation or cancer is three big things cancer can be primary or from other areas of the body spreading to that part very rare but it, it is possible uh, and if you can rule them out that the other causes are quite amenable to the what again the medical jargon conservative treatment meaning no fixing requires no surgery requires uh, and you beautifully uh, illustrated this uh, the tear or torn ligaments uh, some people get really panicked because they go for a scan and when, when you get the report because nowadays you can access GP records through, uh, uh, through the electronic record keeping system and people look at their report and panic and then book a telephone call or, or consultation look my 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 shoulder tendon is now torn it needs fixing so this is another myth beautifully explained thank you very much so I just like to go to the other aspects of the uh, not MSK, which is probably the mostly widely known physiotherapy area, but there are areas like respiratory physiotherapy for breathing exercise. There is another one, neurological, um, neuro or after stroke rehab program. We know um, the community physio and some well-known sports injury physio. So we, we, you know, through the football and other sports, we know about them. If he could say briefly, uh, you've been saying briefly anyway, you can elaborate, we've got some time, so you can talk about those. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking personally, I'm a, a musculoskeletal MSK physiotherapist, and I've worked in football for 13 years of my uh, 18, 19 year career so far. So um, I've seen lots of different injuries, but that cohort of patients generally do better with rehabilitation because they have that one-to-one -one supervised physiotherapy intervention and approaches, and they have contracts to play for, the next paycheck to play for, so they generally do better with rehabilitation. Um, and general sports people who are very, very active-minded. Other physiotherapy measures that you've mentioned, for example, respiratory, now I'm not well-versed in that area, but yes, breathing control, um, we can talk about you know different types of chest physiotherapists to help people clear their secretions, that's also very, very common. A lot of GP practitioners will refer people with chest or cardiac problems to those kind of physiotherapy, cardiac physiotherapy, where we'll get patients to encourage them to move at a very, very low uh, dose and a low level, low intensity level, to just allow them to continue to improve. It could be something from just sitting to standing and doing that eight or 10 times, or passing a ball left and right to your colleague who's sitting next to you who also has a cardiac problem, uh, sorry, cardiac meaning problems related to the heart. So, um, and neurological. 
really, really common. People would have seen a family member or a friend who would have suffered a stroke where you may lose some function in your right upper limb or your left upper limb or even the legs for that matter. And physiotherapy is key in restoring function and quality of life being the biggest factor in these individuals. So we would work with these individuals on a daily basis or weekly basis encouraging them to move and really building up those neural connectivity pathways. The brain is a hardwired system and sometimes when we have a stroke these hardwires can become like a like a frozen computer that needs to be almost whacked to be reset and that whacked to be reset is our exercise program that we would give these individuals to help them develop and restore those neural connective tissues and pathways to help them restore their quality of life. Thank you very much. Uh, we've been covering all aspects of the physiotherapy. Now, as the last question before you go to your roti plant, <laughs> uh, I know that we all are working in a different capacity within the Jalsaga. A lot of our members who is attending this Jalsa, they will be driving back home and uh, probably sitting in their car for a long time. Uh, when they go home, they might find themselves there having a bit of back pain. Uh, what would be your advice to before they call their GPs or maybe <laughs> open access G, uh, you know, physiotherapy service? What would you say to them? <laughs> well, the first thing I'll say to them, you know, you've derived lots of benefits uh, from these last three or four days at the Jalsa. So be safe on your journeys home. Please take a stop to have a quick power nap, stop at a petrol station, move yourself around, have a stretch, you know, walk, open up your legs and stretch your back. It could be just little general, we call them movement snacks that can really alleviate stiffness in your lower back. And most of you going back to, you know, it could be Scotland or Ireland or Wales, driving five, six, seven hours and beyond, you must take breaks regularly for your uh, mindset. Um, also, you know, there's been people, lack of sleep, being at Jalsa Salana as well, people doing office bearers, doing duties at three, four o'clock in the morning, some people 24 hours. So that biopsychosocial approach that I talked about, it could be just tiredness that could lead to your back pain. It's nothing sinister unless the red flags that we mentioned already, Dr. Zakari has mentioned. If you notice any of those in the next three to five days, please contact your GP to discuss any treatment uh, pathway moving forward. But generally, I would advise you guys to get home safely. Tomorrow and the day after is when you usually start to feel what we call delayed onset of muscle soreness. DOMS, we call that, where you start to feel like your knees are hurting or your back's hurting, depending on what you've done in these last three days. Probably it's out of your comfort zone. Maybe you don't exercise much, and maybe in these three days you've really given it a good go with duty to derive the benefits from uh, from Allah. So take it easy. Give yourself two or three days to recover at work. Nutrition is important. Hydration is important. Sleep is important. And return back to your normal activities and exercise regime when you see fit as tolerable. Thank you very much for a very, very, you know, important and relevant um, exercise uh, regime, or shall we say, not entirely, it's not a physiotherapy as such, it's like a, you're giving a, 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 a spiritual food as well uh, to everyone. Spiritual wellness, I like to call spiritual it. Spiritual wellness. Um, so thank you very much. So this will conclude this episode of the physiotherapy element of our Voice of Islam. I'm going to go to another episode in a minute. Uh, we have a cardiology cardiologist with us, a, a, a member of the cardiology team from Walsall Manor Hospital, Dr. Um, Mazar Ahmed Warich. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Mazar Ahmed Warich. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Jazakallah for having me on the show. Now, you are a cardiologist, so we wanted to discuss something a little bit um, worrying subject for our listeners. Uh, so the, our topic is heart failure 
And heart failure means like, you know, if you ask anyone, uh, like member of the public, they will say heart is stopping or heart is failing. So it means the end of the world. So what do you think, uh, how can you explain this, that this heart failure is not the end of the world and what does it mean? So heart failure refers to a collection of symptoms or sort of uh, uh, symptoms that patients can have and uh, often is related to the heart being either too weak or too stiff to pump blood around the body. And the blood is an essential part of the body to get the oxygen and the nutrients to uh, the muscles, the brain, the kidneys. But I agree with you, certainly, the heart failure is a very alarming term. And I personally don't like using the term. And I explain to the patients that I meet that what it really refers to is heart dysfunction. So the heart is not uh, as perfect as we'd want that it to be. Uh, it's not working at 100% efficiency. It may be at 50%, it may be at uh, 20%, or it may be um, different problems within the heart itself that it can't relax properly and it gives you these symptoms which we can identify with further tests and we can do something about it. So th that means that heart is not functioning as it should be. So there is a functional limitation or dysfunction yes. of the heart. So the, it's a performance problem of the heart rather than heart is dying. That's an that, easy way to understand? Exactly, exactly what I would what say. Yeah. Um, however, in, as some diseases progress, it May die. It, it, you may you may uh, see that people with heart failure tend to die earlier than people without heart failure. Exactly. So I was just browsing through some of the statistics uh, that uh, uh, you mentioned before the program. We, we were discussing this that heart failure patients can be treated. Uh, yes. That is a positive thing, and it, life can be enhanced. But if you don't treat it then uh, the half of the patient, or you said like 35% of the patient, survive for only 10 years. So Is that right? Exactly. So uh, we have lots of treatments for heart failure. And because of the variety of causes for heart failure, it really depends on what is the cause. And uh, I think we, we'll, we'll have discuss a chat that. about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's um, go through them. Uh, so heart failure to start with it's not the end of the world so it can be treated to give yeah. people some hope when they get diagnosed oh my god i've got heart failure now so what are the causes if you could uh, i know it's a bit of a complex area so we'll make yeah. it easy for everyone to understand the causes of heart failure so in the western world the most common causes for heart failure are things like people who've had heart attacks in the past uh, people who have had high blood pressure, which has been uncontrolled, had it for many years. People with certain conditions of the heart muscle itself, we call it cardiomyopathy, and these can be uh, genetic conditions, or they can be conditions that they can acquire as they age, uh, where the heart muscle becomes too big or too stiff or not able to function as it normally would. In addition to that, there's conditions of the valves of the heart which can cause uh, the heart to become weak or cause uh, the heart not to uh, work prob properly or even uh, rhythm problems with the heart. 
And certainly one of the most important things for me uh, as a cardiologist is to uh, find out what the cause is so that we can try and address the cause and try and treat that. And that's one of the uh, very uh, first steps of treating uh, heart failure. And commonest, I mean, like as a day-to-day practice, you also see some of the very simple things like untreated hypertension can make heart suffer. Could you please tell us about it? Because I know hypertension is very common and we find very much, you know, from our patient population of resistance, when you first consult them, look, you've got hypertension, you need to take tablets and they kind of resist because they are probably in their 40s or 50s and they think, oh, I'm perfectly fine. I don't have any symptoms, doctor. Why do you want me to take this poison? So can you please tell us a bit more about it because it's very common resistance. I certainly meet a lot of patients who have uh, resistance to taking any medications because it's it's a hassle uh, taking a medication in the morning or at night and sometimes if you're someone who's uh, very active or busy and have a busy lifestyle, they don't want to take medication. But um, one of the things that I emphasize to the, the patients that I meet with blood pressure problems is that uh, we, we often refer it uh, anecdotally as the silent killer and the reason for that is the uh, uncontrolled high, high blood pressure causes problems with strokes but uh, earlier than that people tend to get uh, heart attacks or problems with weakness of the heart um, and also kidney problems and for someone to have that in the early 40s or 50s, that's another 30 years that you have uh, with a major medical condition that requires intensive treatment, which has a massive impact in the quality of life, not only in their, if they're a working person, but also home life, being able to look after their families, being able to uh, travel with travel insurance, I think uh, that can sometimes be um, a big issue for a lot of patients. But also uh, uh, being able to do um, do s- simple things like gardening, being able to exercise, uh, doing doing things that they enjoy. Right. So in terms of, so we've covered the, um, the different causes, but let's say, for example, when some, someone should suspect that they may have this symptom. So I know symptoms can be quite trivial and, and it could be uh, quite misleading to start with, even to the, you know, like a attending doctors. So, so say, for example, so what are the initial symptoms and what are the, you know, obviously as the disease progress, there'll be more symptoms, which would be very obvious when they end up in A&E. But before that, what could be uh, different, you know, uh, symptoms of this, this disease? Uh, you're exactly right. And I referred to this right at the start. Mm-hmm. We refer to heart failure as a clinical syndrome, which means there's a collection of symptoms that people have um, and then as doctors we look for different signs for uh, to tell us whether this is related to the heart or not and certainly one of the commonest symptoms is breathlessness and breathlessness has uh, hundreds of causes um, and so we one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we see someone with breathlessness is that this could be heart failure so if someone uh, feels breathless, we do lots of tests, 
which can uh, tell us where, where, which direction we're going. In addition to that, there's uh, a lot of other symptoms that people can experience. Uh, so with the breathlessness, the reason why that happens is because fluid collects around the lungs. And so if there's fluid around the lungs, when people uh, lie flat in bed, they can feel a lot more breathless. In addition to that, if people lie in bed, um, they can wake up at night sort of gasping for breath because there's fluid in the lungs, they're not getting enough oxygen to the body, and uh, then you feel breathless and you wake up. Now, uh, we often find that people adapt to that uh, breathlessness by sleeping with two pillows or three pillows or sitting up and they may not notice that that's something that's abnormal it's just something that they're comfortable with um, then there's less uh, common uh, symptoms that people think or relate to heart the common things that uh, I find is that people have problems with the appetite um, so eating and drinking, getting constipated, feeling nauseous. And that is uh, because fluid doesn't just collect around the lungs, it collects around all of the body. So the gut becomes uh, swollen with fluid, and so food isn't absorbed as, as well as uh, what it normally would be. And that doesn't just mean fluid, it means medications as well. So often people who have lots of fluid around their body they uh, they need to come into hospital for medications through the IV so that we can get rid of the fluid and they need careful careful monitoring um, and then of course with the fluid one of the most common things that people may notice is swelling in the legs and in severe cases uh, of heart heart problems the fluid can go from the knees to the thighs even to the tummy and uh, and people may not notice that and so often I, I tell patients uh, with heart failure that you should monitor your weight so you weigh yourself every few days or every week and you see uh, what's my weight my weight is meant to be this much but if it's going up one or two kg then I uh, and I'm feeling all these symptoms worsening breathlessness then I need to do something about it right Thank you very much. So, so in, in a nutshell, if the heart is not pumping, uh, then the fluid accumulation is the main uh, end result of this. And this fluid can be in the lung making breathless or in the leg around the ankle usually, what yeah. we call ankle edema, a swelling around the ankle. And that could be the result of this heart failure. Uh, it, obviously, there are other causes of breathlessness, but this could be the one of the many causes. And but how do you then diagnose it? Let, let's say, for example, somebody presenting with this, and you may suspect this, but there are some specifics uh, there for blood tests and and scans. Then how do we uh, then diagnose heart failure as a as a definitive diagnosis? Yes, this is heart failure. So we have a screening blood test that we uh, do for patients called the BNP. It's Not a blood test yep. uh, that the GP can request and uh, very often does it with a battery of tests mm -hmm. because people come in with these non-specific symptoms. So uh, if they find that this test is very high, uh, it's highly suggestive of uh, having problems with the heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they would refer you on to a specialist service in hospital in cardiology and heart failure where we do more definitive tests. So 
the tests that we do include an electrocardiogram, which is a tracing of the heart with uh, uh, the electrical activity of the heart, which we can record and see how the heart is uh, so which is known as ECG, basically. Exactly. I think yeah. people know ECG yeah. now. ECG, okay. yeah. yeah. And then uh, we also do an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, a very basic test to look at the structure of the heart itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how big is it, big is, is it whether it's uh, the right size for that age, that mm-hmm. gender. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the valves. We look at um, the... S- the pressure within the different chambers of the heart as well mm-hmm. and that helps to determine what may or may not be the cause for the uh, mm-hmm. heart uh, heart failure symptoms absolutely and and I, I don't, without going into the much details of this there are different types of heart failure i mean uh, you can measure the uh, the pumping action of the heart and put a percentage of it uh, normally when you see the report we see this is the percentage of your I just wanted to say the name of it, ejection fraction, and so on. So it's actually an indicator of your heart, performance of your heart, if you like. Exactly. So uh, the ejection fraction, which you refer to, um, a normal function, a normal person would uh, have an ejection fraction of about 60%. Mm. So the, the main pump of the heart, called the left ventricle, fills up with blood and pumps a out 60% of the volume of blood within it. Mm-hmm. If that goes down, that uh, because of um, certain problems like a heart attack or high blood pressure that's been uncontrolled, that tends to lead to heart failure and we um, we can treat that uh, with medication. Now, uh, one of the important things about uh, the ultrasound scan that we do one of the main things that is of benefit is we can look at the valves, um, which is a, a very, very common uh, problem, either the valves becoming uh, incompetent, so the valves are meant to be a one-way system, but if they uh, are incompetent, they let uh, blood go back uh, through the valves, or if they become too tight, and that uh, can happen due to old age, due to certain conditions like rheumatic fever, although it's not as common uh, this as, part it of the world. as it was before. But, but yeah. it is common in uh, other in, parts in of the world. Exactly. So the Voice of Islam is uh, our listeners in all over the world, so it may be relevant to other parts, but not in the UK. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so the disease valve is one of the valves could be one of the causes. Yeah. Uh, the rhythm problem is another one. The genetic condition of this muscle cardiomyopathies. Mm-hmm. There are a variety of causes, so we kind of now get the idea of there are different causes of uh, heart failure. So now we got the diagnosis. Now we come to okay. Now someone got the diagnosis. Don't not no need to panic, but they need to comply with the management plan. And I, I know most of the time the management would be. Uh, some form of medications. Now, I want to go a little bit detail of these medications because, again, the biggest issue of uh, not being successfully treated heart failure is compliance issue. This is about you know number of medications. Poorly understood why I'm taking all those tablets, doctor. Uh, and most of the time, when we do medication review, we know that the patients they're not taking them because they don't know why they're taking them. Could you please tell us like what are the different uh, modalities of treatment starting from medications and others 
So definitely uh, medications is uh, the mainstay of the treatment for heart failure. And, and as you rightly said, educating patients about the importance of taking medication and identifying when the symptoms are getting worse to seek medical help because mm-hmm. they may need changes. Mm-hmm. So the medications that we use for the heart tend to work uh, on the kidneys. So if the heart is failing, uh, it tells the kidneys that, oh, there's something wrong. Uh, we need we need extra fluid because we're not getting enough blood around the system, and uh, that in the short term is a good mechanism because it means that uh, there's more they can get more blood around the system, but in the long term that fluid seeps into the tissues and causes all these symptoms of breathlessness and swelling. So we these medications block uh, this signal from the heart to the kidneys. And uh, and essentially uh, help uh, the heart function uh, to, in go a, slow. In a, to go a little bit slower and a, and a, with a little bit of less pressure. In the last few years, we've had some really good advancement in medications. So there's a diabetic drug, which SGLT2. Uh, SGLT2. So it's called dapagliflozin or canagliflozin. These drugs. Although they were first uh, uh, used for for diabetic medications, they uh, have been found to have a massive uh, benefit for patients with heart heart disease and also kidney disease. So we use those drugs. Uh, In addition to that, we use um, beta blockers which slow down the heart. So I say to to patients that a a slow pumping heart is a better pumping heart. If the heart is uh, going at uh, 120 beats per minute, it is uh, going to be working a lot less efficient than a heart that's going at 60 beats per minute. So we want to keep the heart at a slow rate. And and also when you do exercise, uh, we don't want it to go really, really fast as well because that can make it uh, a little bit more. Mm. But certainly uh, people may be afraid of taking beta blockers because they think, oh, it's going to cause lots of tiredness. But actually, often it uh, helps with tiredness because if you increase the efficiency of the heart, Mm. then you get more blood going around. And we are not giving any specific advice to people to start taking those medications now. They need to consult with their GPs and their cardiologists to to ascertain what type of because those drugs they have side effects as well and there is a you know clear advice of monitoring and uh, SGLT2 certainly you need uh, kidney function and so on so uh, so obviously this is only just discussion to uh, to tell people that there is definitely a reason why NHS is funding your medications and we are advising people to take that medication there are some newish not newish newish in the UK maybe uh, drugs that is coming to the NHS like Cicubitil and, and and others. So do you want to tell us a bit more about them? So uh, that again is another um, medication that signals to the kidneys, um, so blocks the uh, signals going from the heart to the kidneys to help the heart uh, uh, n- not uh, tell the kidneys to retain more and more fluid. Okay. One, one of the things that uh, I would say with regards to uh, these medications is that uh, every medication that uh, we give patients, we start off at a very low dose because uh, starting off a big dose tends to give 
lots of symptoms, especially with these medications that affect blood pressure and the kidneys. And we do that so that the body can get used to it. And I would say about two to two, two weeks is probably where we're looking at to uh, give the bo body some time to get used to a medication. Um, and if it doesn't work, then, then we can try something else. But it would be important to give the medication some time because it does reduce the number of admissions to hospital that people have with heart failure. It does prolong life. Uh, in terms of, um, as we as you mentioned right at the start, mm. uh, people with heart failure, about a third of them in, in would pass away in, in mm. 10 years' time. And also it does help with symptoms. So um, a lot of it about is about educating patients, uh, telling them that this does make a difference, and it certainly is a mainstay of uh, treatment. Absolutely. And uh, obviously if this then that person can go back to a productive life uh, because the morbidity of this disease is very high and we know a lot of people are um, housebound because of the heart failure because they're unable to do any exertion uh, and they can be uh, economically unproductive uh, entirely and dependent on others. So this is, you know, obviously very... Uh, the people are aging, uh, people are living longer the success of this all this medicine so they are having this uh, extra burden um, on uh, I suppose on the NHS and the social care and so on so I would like to go back to uh, the prognosis uh, what you just uh, mentioned about the treatment success and uh, the finally if all treatments fail what can be done uh, perhaps uh, very rarely but it can be done uh, surgically as well if you could tell us about that so in terms of uh, further treatments for heart failure, there's lots of strategies uh, that we use to help people. So there are specialized pacemaker systems that can help um, if the heart is going in a disorganized manner. So for example, uh, we have uh, the left ventricle, which is the main pump of the heart, and we have the right ventricle. Uh, normally the left ventricle contracts or pumps first and then the right ventricle pumps work but in heart failure that that can become disorganized and so we can uh, make the heart go in a more organized manner with uh, a special pacemaker that's one thing that can be considered if uh, we find that the heart is going in this manner um, in addition to that people with uh, heart failure or certainly very weak hearts can have uh, dangerous rhythms of the heart. So those special pacemakers can deliver shocks to the heart to make it go back to the right rhythm. Um, in addition to that, uh, there's, uh, there's not very, very often, but uh, very, very rarely people may have heard of heart transplant. Um, there's about 80 heart transplants that happen in the UK. Um, and these patients are uh, so AD within a within, in a, within the, a year within a year, right? You know, not exactly. since we started no. heart transplant has been going on for such a long time. Yes, yeah. So every year, right about you know eighty to hundred probably yeah. transplants. Yeah, and and these are very uh, s uh, specific group of people who um, are able to get a transplant, and there's often a long waiting list. So. People with to get a donor or to, to, to get find a donor. A donor. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, 
these these people may be waiting for a long period of time and they've got very weak hearts so maybe going at 10% uh, efficiency and so they have um, uh, special devices that can be fit by surgeons uh, to help the heart function these are called left ventricular assist devices these and they often you may or may not have ever seen mm-hmm. uh, people carrying battery packs with uh, connected to their chest and that uh, that is always an interesting discussion mm-hmm. in addition to that I, I would say with with regards to heart failure one of my focuses would be to find out what the cause is because if we address the cause certain things can get better and uh, people with very tight valves uh, if we fix the valve the heart may go back to normal so there is a role for the surgeons, I exactly, guess. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, as they used to be 20, 30 years ago, as cardiothoracic surgeon used to really do the bypass surgery in their main, you know, their main job. But nowadays they do other things, and, and the valve replacement can be necessary. You mentioned is the mitra, mitral valve is mainly responsible this, or the other one, tricuspid. So there's four different valves of the heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say the two valves on the left side called the mitral valve mm-hmm. and the aortic valve are the mo- mm-hmm. more important valves mm-hmm. and certainly um, people uh, who have uh, uh, incompetence of these valves mm-hmm. uh, can have heart failure and also tightness of these valves that can heart failure and they can both require surgery depending on the characteristics and we obviously look at the characteristics with ultrasound scans uh, we can look at the characteristics with our MRI scan and it's interesting that you men- mentioned surgeons because people with weak hearts mm-hmm. may be caused by a, a blood supply problem mm-hmm. and so often we find that uh, we can send them to surgeons they have a valve problem and a blood supply problem and the surgeons can do uh, a bypass and a valve uh, procedure at the same time and essentially hopefully fix the heart for the for the patient um, would that be just an incidental finding of the blood flow issue like a nutrition of the heart if you like coronary arteries problem basically yep. so you, you, when you're doing the investigations it might not be the apparent patient that they're having chest pain or ischemic heart disease may not be known, but once you do this all this investigation, you might find that the supply within the coronary arteries they are obstructed, and uh, they might do this uh, in one go. Is that what you? you yeah, mean by exactly. That? Yeah. So if we find someone has a major uh, valve problem of the heart, uh, we always look at the blood supply issue so that if the if the surgeons are going to open the chest, they can fix everything in one go. Yeah, that's, so that's that's a, that is a really a good uh, point. So I guess for uh, for our listeners uh, to understand this, uh, we've gone all the way up to the surgery, um, starting from the very humble beginning of how do we diagnose it, because the diagnostics are available. And uh, in the UK, this can be done, believe it or not, you know, all the primary care physician GPs are now equipped with the blood test, which is known as a BNP, 
not the British Nationalist Party, it's a PNP <laughs> as a marker for heart failure, uh, and they can do it readily. It's not a, uh, it's commonly available via your GPs, and they can also order, uh, request this echocardiogram. So this, uh, so diagnostics almost uh, very uh, reachable by our patients who are very lucky to be within the National Health Service covered by it, you don't pay a penny. Uh, so this is really very good. So I would like to, you know, I'm going to finish this in a few minutes. A few, uh, let me just check. We, we've got only five minutes left. So we're going to talk about the prognostics, prognosis of this, uh, i.e. if we treat it, then what's our uh, life expectancy? And probably I don't know if we don't treat it, whether we have got any data or not. I don't know this. But can you tell us about this, that if there is any hope and if there is that how far can we go with this? Can we give them the normal life? So the first thing I would say about about that is if people start noticing these symptoms, they should seek attention from medical professional early. And if we catch things early, then we can do a lot more about it. And getting the treatment in early makes a massive difference to how the course of the condition is. So. Um, I've seen people who um, do marathon run, runs and uh, do biking for 20 kilometers a day mm -hmm. with a heart failure. And that's because we've, we've caught uh, the disease early, we've treated it, and we've uh, gotten it uh, at a stage where it's controlled and they can, uh, they've built up, like the last talk was about uh, physiotherapy improved their function, the body function, despite this uh, deficiency in the heart and they're able to do this so much even more than an ordinary person can do um, but if we catch the disease uh, at a later stage uh, especially in the very late stages of heart failure where people find it very breathless to even just get out of the bed or chair then certainly it's a lot more challenging to treat that condition and and that depends on um, uh, how people do so uh, dep depending on what the cause of the heart failure is depending on where we find it depending how they do the treatment uh, and what uh, whether we can treat the cause that all makes up uh, uh, how a person would do with heart failure and certainly there's there's so much we can do um, that it would be it would be really sad that we see people in the later stages where we feel that we can't offer them any treatment that would be of benefit. So um, it's really difficult to put a ballpark figure, but um, uh, about 50% uh, of the patients who have diagnosed with heart failure may not make it to five years, and then about a third to 10 years. Uh, a, th a third would make it to about 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we catch the disease early, we want those people to be in that third or even make that third of patients in 10 years to be half or even 80%. That's what we'd want to do in the future. And that and that's what the uh, novel treatments in heart failure are. They are actually making a massive difference to how long people live. In the last 20 years, these new medications certainly uh, have had a massive impact on how long people live. Absolutely. So with the new, newish, all these um, innovations, uh, medications available, I guess in the future we'll know that the figure will probably improve and uh, people will live longer and productive life, as you rightly mentioned, they can have a normal day-to-day -day life and can do exercises 
and may not be a burden to 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 the state or uh, the, you know they can be all productive thank you very much so we've covered a lot of area um regarding heart failure which is something that uh, i guess uh, our listeners will find uh, useful this information and probably you know i hope they don't have this disease but if someone they have in their family or friends they may be able to guide them to the right treatment now we're right at the end of the program i just like to mention that this uh, i've got requests to talk about different uh, topics uh, on uh, the medical you know on medical matters and, uh, and and i would like to request to go to our website voice of islam and there are podcasts there and at the bottom of the page you can see the soundcloud you can go in there and, and search for, uh, we've done almost 14, 13, 14 programs, uh, different topics are there, even hypertension, back pain, um, we've done chest pain, we've done uh, dizziness and lots of other topics that been, that has been covered and, um, and we, we had loads of uh, eminent speaker, they're all specialists in their field and I would advise uh, people to go and search and listen to this. I know people may not tune in when we are broadcasting, but you can now use podcast and social media and you can keep that uh, whenever you're traveling or driving, you can uh, listen to this program. Now, as last point, cardiology is a very important specialty. Nowadays, 7.2 million people waiting for their appointments. Um, we can't finish this program without um, all in negative notes. We need to say something positive. What would you say in terms of like, you know, um, uh, accessing NHS? Do you want to give any advice? You know, when people get appointments, they tend to, you know, um, they go to the doctors, but they tend to forget really. Sometimes they don't attend the OPD. There's about, you know, there's a lot more even cry in the NHS about their, you know, efficiency of OPD, outpatient department. Do you want to say anything about this particular one? Uh, how to prepare for your how to get the best out of it, shall we say that? I think um, the patients that mostly benefit about it, they know uh, what they're coming for, what the reasons are, what the symptoms are. So often I see people who've written things down. That can be a useful aid memoir for if you forget uh, what, uh, what kind of symptoms you get. People come in with their medications. Um, one of the things that I do want to mention is that if you can't make it to an appointment, please call in to rebook because that appointment can go to someone else and that can be really uh, ben can benefit someone else because uh, there is certainly a sh shortage in in cardiology uh, we like to see patients um, very quickly within the first two two to four weeks if we can and often we may give you a call and say oh actually we've looked at the referral and we want to organize this test and then when you come to us then we can talk about it mm. and that's how we sometimes do things so that we have all the information then we can start the treatment and get things rolling um, and that that's probably one of the best ways that uh, I find that people benefit. Thank you very much from me very quickly top tip for me very basic one please keep your uh, information that you've given demographic like your phone numbers are the key nowadays because the hospitals and doctors everyone using SMS and if your phone number is wrong mobile phone number then it, it's not going to be any use and they do call in a short notice because there's a cancellation or somebody cancelled their appointment they want to talk to you so please please make sure you've got the correct telephone number mobile phone is preferable 
would be very good and that's top tip and second top tip is actually when you go to see any uh, of your doctors obviously make sure you get your uh, symptoms are ready and your uh, medications that you are taking take it with with you thank you very much for listening uh, inshallah we will meet again we'll, we'll see you again assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh